Welcome to this hour of Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. I am here in the studio with Dan Torres, our producer and oftentimes contributor. want you to know if you'd like to uh, comment or question us or have something you want to say, text us at 413-586-7140, either during the show or anytime, 24-7. One issue that is recurring on this show, and I think in conversations everywhere here in the Valley, and throughout the country is the question of how and if and when will we abolish the use of fossil fuels. And I'm so pleased that Brian Adams has with him and us today his, his guest, Kevin Young, who is a professor of history at UMass Amherst, who has a new book coming out titled Abolishing Fossil Fuels. This is our regular segment with Brian Adams, who is Professor Emeritus of Environmental Studies at Greenfield Community College, Thank you both so very much for being here. Let me turn the microphone over to you, Brian Adams. Thank you, Bill. Um, and just a quick shout out before we begin to Leap Day. Hey, hurrah! This happens every four years. It's Leap Year. Today is the 29th of <coughs> February, uh, Leap Day. And as I think most of our listeners know, the sun, uh, the earth revolves around the sun uh, on a typical year. Um, 365 uh, days, but on leap year, um, the, the, it's, it's really 365 and a quarter days. So to keep the calendar straight every four years, we just have to add another day on that. So this is um, leap year day on leap year. Um, and in a typical year, uh, there's 52 weeks and one day in the calendar. Uh, on leap year, there's 52 weeks and two days in the calendar. So usually if your birthday falls on Tuesday one year, the next year is gonna fall on Wednesday. The reason we call it leap year is because in leap year, if your birthday fell on Tuesday last year, it will fall on Thursday this year. We leap ahead a day. And that has absolutely nothing to do with our conversation today. But <laughs> yeah, but it was again, pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, but once again, happy, happy leap day, happy leap year. Um, and again, to reiterate what, what Bill said, we talk a lot about climate change and what can we do about it? I mean, it's this existential threat that is affecting so many people and living things now, and the future is uncertain. Uh, and it's wonderful to have us with it in, in the studio, Kevin Young. And again, he's a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts. Go UMass! Uh, and his new book, Abolishing Fossil Fuels, coming out sometime in the middle of April. Um, Kevin, you have a really fascinating premise uh, in, in your book that it's not, the, it's not voting uh, that's gonna do it. It's gonna take something much more than the electoral process. It's gonna take a mass movement, massive disruption, mass chaos to, to deal with environmental chaos. Can you tell us the, 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 the premise of your, of your book? And let me just note that the subtitle to the book titled Abolishing Fossil Fuels is Lessons from Movements that Won. It has an optimistic title. Kevin Young. Great. So uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, maybe I'll start with the, uh, the most optimistic part of the book, uh, which is uh, the, uh, the latter portion of the book, about the last actually 60% of the book, uh, deals with non-climate movements, and it's an attempt 
by me to draw some lessons from uh, some historic social movement victories in the United States. So I look at the abolition of slavery. I look at workers' struggles uh, for workplace rights in the 1930s. Uh, I look at the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s uh, and the movement for clean air in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, my conclusion from looking at all those different movements is that the fundamental basis of their political power uh, was not elections and it wasn't legislative lobbying and pressure campaigns. Uh, It was their ability to create disruption that impacted sectors of the elite, uh, particularly the economic elite. And so uh, when that disruption reached a certain point, Uh, we saw one or more sectors of the ruling class actually begin to confront uh, the sectors that the movement was targeting. So in the case of the Civil War and abolition, uh, Northern capital eventually mobilized forces against uh, the Southern slaveholders and the Confederacy. Uh, In the case of the Civil Rights Movement 100 years later, uh, it was uh, largely the Southern business elite uh, as well as the Northern business elite Uh, who took on the political establishment in the Jim Crow South and essentially forced them to racially integrate. And they did that under enormous pressure uh, from black-led movements in the South uh, in places like Birmingham in 1963, uh, which, you know, it was a historic uh, movement victory for the civil rights struggle, and it led uh, uh, fairly directly, in fact, to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, Uh, which wouldn't have been possible if that victory at Birmingham had not occurred. And the main reason why the the activists in Birmingham were so successful is that they were able to create economic disruption uh, that eventually, after about five weeks of a boycott and sit-in campaign and just general mass disruption in downtown Birmingham, it led the downtown merchants and uh, real estate men and bankers in the community uh, to go to the political officials and say, look, you have to integrate Uh, so that we can restore the conditions necessary for us to be profitable. Uh, And then that process kind of rippled outward from Birmingham uh, across the nation and to the national level. Uh, And it was one month after the victory at Birmingham that Kennedy finally introduced civil rights legislation that became the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So that's a key example that I use in the book. I think it's indicative of how movements can wield power uh, through more than just electoral means. Uh, the key power of the civil rights movement was not from uh, elections or or even public opinion. It was from the movement's own ability uh, to create disruption. One one of the things that I'm agonizing over, Kevin, uh, is that there seems to be this sort of um, languishing of people to engage in mass movements in the United States. There's this this I don't know. It's not tranquility, but this uh. We just have to adapt to, to to climate change. I don't see. Do you think that there can be a mass movement rising um, to to help abolish fossil fuels in this country? I just think people seem apathetic to me. There are activists out there. There are great organizations doing good work, but the general public is like, eh, um, eh. You know, here's here's yet another crisis to 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 worry about and do nothing about. Um, can you help us to how, how, how do we get there now? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. And uh, I think we have to operate on the assumption that it is possible. Um, and if we look at some of these examples from history, uh, you know, if we go back 10 or 20 or 30 years before each of those victories, uh, the situation looked extremely bleak. So uh, go back to, you know, the 1830s, uh, you know, and and the, the work of the abolitionist movement. 
you know, there are a lot of reasons to to be pessimistic uh, from the perspective of the 1830s uh, about the abolition of slavery, yet 30 years later, uh, uh, we got abolition. Uh, if we go to the 1930s, uh, the workers' upsurge in the 1930s that had such an empower, uh, such a, a powerful impact on the New Deal and uh, the right to unionize and all of these other rights, the Social Security system, for instance. Uh, in the 1920s, the 1920s was the low point of union activity uh, for the generation that was alive at that point. Only about 10% of the workforce in the U.S. was unionized, which is incidentally about the same rate that it is today. Uh, and yet within a few years, a few years into the Great Depression, in fact, it didn't happen immediately, uh, but there was a giant upsurge in, in worker uh, militancy. And that led uh, in no small measure to the New Deal. So I think that we have to... Uh, uh, we have to operate with the same assumption today that it is possible to mobilize people to bring them into the movement. And we do see uh, plenty of, of signs of this. It's not on the scale that we need, uh, but we do see millions of people mobilizing, even if uh, kind of sporadically uh, around the globe uh, to take on the climate crisis. Ke Kevin Young. Bill, you have a... I do. I do. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. Uh, Kevin Young, <clears throat> you're, you're a history professor at UMass Amherst. You've published other books in addition to the one coming forthcoming, Abolishing Fossil Fuels. Uh, and those books include Levers of Power, How the 1% Rules, and What the 99% Can Do About It. I want to know from your perspective as a historian what you make of the fact that the disruption that we see in American society today is substantially from the right from people who are not interested in abolishing fossil fuels. They are saying, drill, baby, drill. <clears throat> it's Trumpism. And how do you reconcile that with your thesis that if we come together, if we cause enough disruption, we can get the people who matter and the corporations that control the, 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 the industries and, and the resources that are causing climate catastrophe to stop what they're doing? How do you square that circle? Well, I think there are ways in which the climate crisis is unprecedented and ways in which there are also historical parallels that we need to pay attention to. Uh, so in all of the cases that I profile in the book, you know, from abolition to workers' rights to the civil rights movement, all of those movements elicited a fierce backlash from their opposition. And the backlash itself created enormous disruption. So the forces that became the Southern Confederacy uh, they, you know, launched raids into the north across the Mason-Dixon line to try to recapture uh, enslaved people who had escaped. Uh, that created lots of disruption. Uh, there was disruption in the legal system and in the government system. Um, and, uh, it, you know, so the, the forces of reaction, uh, the right-wing forces who have opposed these movements, create disruption in their own right, which uh, in some ways uh, historically has led uh, or has fed into the dynamic in which uh, certain sectors of the ruling class eventually find it necessary uh, to, uh, to intervene and, and stop that disruption. Now, I'm not saying by any means that the, the disruption that the right uh, creates is a positive thing. It's, it's certainly not. It's extremely scary. Uh, and it's especially scary uh, in the context of today. One of the ways in which the climate crisis is historically unprecedented is that uh, we are literally talking about the preservation of a livable planet. When it came to abolition, when it came to workers' rights, even when it came to the threat of the Axis powers and Nazi Germany, uh, we weren't talking about the literal destruction of 
the conditions that make life on Earth possible. And uh, the climate crisis, uh, as well as the nuclear threat, the threat of, threat of nuclear war, which is very real, uh, much more real than uh, most of us tend to realize on a day-to-day -day basis, those are the truly existential crises. And the reaction from the opposition to these movements, the fossil fuel industry in particular, which is saying drill, baby, drill, and basically just doubling down on uh, the trajectory that we all know that scientists are, have a consensus on is going to undermine the very conditions that make organized human societies possible. Uh, and I could speak more about the, the projected consequences over the next several decades. Uh, for sake of time, I won't do that. Uh, but uh, the point is that there are uh, some ways in which the climate emergency is historically unprecedented. But other, uh, there are other ways that we can learn from past movements that have been successful in taking on particular sectors of the capitalist class. What's really interesting when you talk about um, disruption from uh, in in this country from the right uh, can actually aid in a in in the in the pendulum swinging the other way uh, and cause disruption from uh, progressives to then move move the the, the the climate crisis forward in a way that that uh, that makes sense for us that makes sense for people that makes sense for the planet. We're talking with Kevin Young. Kevin is a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts. He is the author of an upcoming book, very excited about it. It's called Abolishing Fossil Fuels, uh, Lessons from Struggles That Won. I'm sorry, did I get the second part right? Um, close enough. Close enough. Um, so close <laughs> enough. Uh, and uh, Bill, we'll be right back uh, with more conversation with Kevin Young and this existential threat of climate change and what we can do about it. I was hoping for replacement When the sun burst through the sky There was a band playing in my head You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We are so pleased that Brian Adams has with him and us today, Professor Brian Adams, Professor Emeritus of Environmental Studies, Greenfield Community College, has him with, with him and us today, Kevin Young, history professor at the University of Massachusetts, whose new book is forthcoming, Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements that Won. Brian Adams. So, Kevin, um, are you optimistic that in this country, a mass movement can arise that can exert those disruptive forces that you talk about as so inter integral to, to fighting climate crisis? I'm optimistic that we have the potential for that movement, but it's going to require a lot of organizing work uh, to create a movement that draws people in, that uh, empowers them to take real action that they, that they find empowering and that has some, uh, some impact on their targets. Uh, and to sustain that pressure over time. That's one of the key arguments I make in the book, that we really have to, uh, we really have to go beyond the kind of episodic and sometimes ritualistic uh, social movement protests that we see in this country to create the kind of sustained disruption. It's not just disruption, it's sustaining that disruption over time. Because if our targets believe that the, the, the source of the dis disruption is going to fizzle out uh, within a few weeks or a few months, uh, then they're not going to concede to any of our demands. So I am optimistic that we have the potential if we 
do the hard work to build the movement. Uh, and I'll give you some reasons why I'm optimistic about that. Uh, when it comes to electoral politics, uh, well, I'm actually not particularly optimistic about the uh, potential for building an electoral coalition that can uh, win power away from the Republicans at the national level and prevent them from returning to office. To do that, we really have we would have to get you know probably two thirds or more of the population, uh, not only on our side but actually prioritizing uh, climate at the ballot box. And to me, that doesn't seem like a realistic prospect uh, in the near term, the, the, the years that we have left to confront this crisis. Uh, but when it comes to uh, other forms of activism that don't necessarily require uh, a majority, that don't necessarily rely on having uh, a majority of voters on our side, uh, there is enormous potential. So the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, which does regular polling of the U.S. public on these matters, uh, released a report a few months ago, and they found that 28% uh, of the U.S. public is what they classified as alarmed about climate change. They know what the crisis is. They know it's happening. They know we need drastic transformation of the economy. Uh, so that amounts to tens of millions of people in this country, tens of millions of adults and teenagers who are uh, ready and, and essentially waiting for people from the movement to reach out to them and to give them um, a realistic avenue that they can plug into with their activism. Uh, beyond that 28%, we have another 29%, uh, so together that's over half the population, uh, who are classified as concerned. So maybe not quite as... Uh, uh, as um, alarmed or as, as uh, uh, angry, perhaps, or riled up as the alarmed people, uh, but people who are also uh, potential recruits into our movement. Uh, so the, the capacity there, the potential uh, there is, is real. And uh, if we do the work to organize those folks uh, and think, think hard about our, our strategies and our campaigns, then I think that we can build the movement we need. Kevin, you talk about systemic disruption. What does that mean for the climate movement? Disrupting what exactly? Well, I try to, throughout the book, I try to uh, figure out what some of the parallel strategies would be between the historical movements that are profile and the current climate movement. And in fact, the current climate movement uh, is pursuing a lot of the things that, uh, um, you know, I consider to be parallels uh, with the historical social movements in the book. So, for example, there's been an enormous campaign that's really taken off just in the last five years or so uh, to target the financial institutions that finance and underwrite the fossil fuel industry and other heavy polluting industries. So we're talking about banks. We're talking about Chase Bank, which is literally a block from this studio. Uh, Chase Bank in downtown Northampton is the world's leading financier of fossil fuels. Since the Paris Climate Accord of 2015, Chase Bank has given hundreds of billions of dollars or lent hundreds of billions of dollars to fossil fuels, including for new and expanded oil, oil and gas operations, you know, which is exactly what we need to cease uh, doing immediately, according to the International Energy Agency. Uh, so Chase Bank and Chase Bank and also Bank of America, another bank with a branch in Northampton, uh, which is also among the top four uh, finance years of climate change. And in um, Amherst, we should know. And in Amherst, right. And uh, so there are lots of local targets here that uh, could could feed into national and international campaigns 
against these financial institutions. And in addition to the banks, we have uh, insurance companies, which are incredibly important. They don't get as much attention, but they're incredibly important targets. They're sort of uh, an Achilles heel for the, finan- uh, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, because if the, ins- if the fossil fuel companies don't have insurance, it's very hard for them to get financing. And without financing, they can't uh, do their drilling. Uh, so going after the insurance companies is also extremely important. I think that those financial uh, targets are are very promising. And judging by the response in the business press and in the fossil fuel industry's own publications, they are worried about this. You know, one of the things that I think the movement needs to do is to look closely at what its its opposition is saying among themselves in private or kind of quietly in press conferences and so on. Um, what are they worried about? What are the financial, uh, wh- what are the, the fossil fuel industry uh, executives and investors worried about? And one of the things they are worried about is this campaign taking on financial institutions. And this is the reason why we've seen the fossil fuel companies mount this huge backlash uh, against uh, states and against uh, locales and against um uh, banks in particular, that threaten to cut off financing for fossil fuels. This is sort of a desperate measure that the industry is taking uh, to try to prevent this this broader disinvestment or divestment uh, from fossil fuels. And that reaction is, uh, it, in my view, is actually encouraging to us. It should be encouraging to us. It uh, suggests that we are having an impact in uh, beginning, and I stress beginning because we're not going nearly fast enough, but we are beginning uh, to push the financial institutions, which are really the main power holders in our, in our economy. Uh, they're the ones who really have the power to, to, uh, to neutralize the fossil fuel industry. We are beginning to push them uh, away. Right? It's just happening much too slowly. So if we look at uh, recent uh, some of the recent small victories of the climate movement. Uh, there have been some small victories that have really flown under the radar. You really have to look closely to, to, see, uh, uh, to see these things. Uh, but in you know, the rate of, uh, or the price uh, increases for uh, insurance in the coal industry, for example, it's very hard for coal companies to get the insurance they need. If they get it, they have to pay a lot more for it. And that, in part, is a reflection of the movement's work over the last two decades, uh, one of the most, one of the biggest successes of the climate movement in the U.S. has been the anti-coal campaigns, uh, and there's lots of reasons why coal has declined. Part of it is due to market forces, but part of it is also due to the movement. There's been a tremendous nationwide movement, again, mostly beneath the radar. This hasn't gotten headlines, but hundreds of coal plants have been canceled uh, or retired early beyond their their planned retirement dates because of the work of anti-coal campaigns. And this is especially local organizers who have taken on these plants. They've, you know, they've sued the regulators. They've done civil disobedience. They've gone after the banks and the insurance companies that enable uh, the, the coal, uh, coal-fired power plants and the coal extraction itself. And uh, that's, that's one of the most inspiring successes of the last two decades. And we can take a lot of inspiration from uh, those campaigns uh, for our work uh, taking on the oil and gas industries. Well, it's really nice to leave this conversation at an optimistic note, to know that there is hope, that there is progress, that there is movement, that there is that disruption going on. 
talking about shutting down the coal plants, um, which is really exciting. Um, Kevin, your new book, Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements That Won. Uh, when can people start ordering that? How do they get that book? Hopefully it'll be available in local bookstores. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that before we leave? Sure. So uh, it'll be coming out officially uh, sometime in the second half of April, but it's now available for pre-order online. If people just search my name and Abolishing Fossil Fuels, you can find it. Uh, the publisher is PM Press. Uh, so uh, you can go online and, and, and pre-order it if you want. So we thank you so very, very much, Professor Kevin Young, Professor of History at UMass Amherst. Again, his new book, Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements That Won. You have been listening to Brian Adams' segment, Science and Sensibility, on Talk the Talk. Brian, GCC Professor Emeritus of Environmental Studies. Thank you so much for bringing this important topic to our attention and for bringing such a fascinating and important guest, Professor Kevin Young. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Progress we have found a way to talk around the problem building towers for scientists. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.